Hello ketungan toki here come Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Minyamblumi Koroi Hawkins coming up we've been preparing for it uh, since last year uh, but it's uh, now we're doing a wider community testing we check in with health authorities in the Cook Islands where COVID-19 cases are on the rise we've been around for over 100 years we turned 100 in 2018 pushed out by civil war one of Papua New Guinea's oldest companies returns to Bougainville I'm an optimist and I think that there's a real potential for change in New Zealand. And we conclude our Talanoa series on Australia and New Zealand's spy operations in the Pacific. COVID-19 cases continue to climb in the Cook Islands with 50 active cases reported by the government at the time this program was recorded. The majority of the cases are imported from New Zealand, but community spread is something the Cook Islands government says it's prepared for. RNZ Pacific reporter Alicia Foon spoke with Cook Islands Health Secretary Bob Williams on Wednesday. Uh, we have a total of 54 cases altogether, um, but we have released case one up to four, and so there is 50 active cases that remain. So out of the uh, the remaining 50 cases, we have one cluster, uh, a big cluster. Uh, as of yesterday, it was about uh, 21 uh, people within this family cluster. And, of course, with uh, there were 12 new cases yesterday um, from our initial review. But the 12, uh, some of those uh, people are part of the same family cluster. Um, but uh, all the cases from case 1 to 54 some of them are still asymptomatic, and majority of them are very minor, mild uh, cases. What can you tell me about testing measures? Testing continues today. Uh, at the moment, we have uh, three testing stations, and uh, we're planning to stand up another testing station uh, in another side of the island. Um, so there will be two other testing stations outside of the main town where people can go to and get tested. So the focus uh, from today going forward is to the use of the rapid antigen test, tests. Uh, so majority of the 50 cases uh, have been picked up from the rapid antigen testing and, also, and, of course, to be confirmed by PCR testing. Are most of the cases imported? Uh, most of the original cases are imported, um, but I think there's a few... Uh, unrelated cases, uh, which we are still determining the source of the infection. So case investigation for some of the cases are still continuing. So the big uh, family cluster is an imported case. And aside from this, uh, there's another four imported cases. Is the Cook Islands prepared for this? Um, we've been preparing for it uh, since last year, uh, but it's uh, now we're doing a wider community testing, and that's why we're standing up uh, more testing stations to, so we can uh, get a feel of the extent of the uh, spread up to this point. Um, so the testing of the next couple of days uh, will inform us uh, of the extent of the spread up to now. Will travellers from New Zealand be able to use rapid antigen tests instead of PCR, which requires a timestamp on their results? That's caught a lot of travellers out. It's under discussion now. Uh, there is a process that we have to go through uh, before we can uh, put that into effect. Uh, so the, 
the thinking uh, going forward is to use rapid antigen testing in Auckland as cases in Auckland, in Auckland, I mean in New Zealand, also escalates. When a rapid antigen test can be undertaken before boarding the flight. Yeah, so the same applies here. Uh, at the moment, there's no expectation to do further tests on arrival, um, but uh, we encourage people to monitor their health and also get tested. Is there anyone in hospital or ICU? No, no. Um, it's all in the homes now. As I said, uh, majority of them are just very minor symptoms. In fact, uh, some of them uh, recovers uh, after a day or two with headaches and yeah, that's about it. One of the oldest companies in Papua New Guinea recently held a reconciliation with the autonomous Bougainville government. Steamships had had significant businesses in Kieta and central Bougainville, but it was forced out during the civil war that lasted from 1988 to 1998. Now the managing director, Rupert Bray, has been to Toniva, central Bougainville, to break ground and fulfil customary obligations with the landowners before the company returns. He thanked the ABG for allowing steamships to reclaim the lands it had leased before the Bougainville crisis. Don Wiseman spoke with Steamship's Corporate Affairs Manager, David Tor, and began by asking about the company's long history in PNG. We've been around for over 100 years. We turned 100 in 2018. Fitch came up and effectively he was a coastal trader. Over the years, we've transitioned into various types of businesses. We've been farmers, we've had farms, we've had manufacturing, we've, we've had wholesale and retail outlets. But right now, we consist of logistics businesses and property businesses, which includes a hotel chain, and we're shareholders in a manufacturing business. So what were you doing in Bougainville prior to the beginning of the Civil War? Okay, so prior to uh, the trouble in Bougainville, we had a presence in Kieta. We had some hospitality through a hotel. We had steamship shops there, so we were there in retail. And we did participate in shipping to and from Bougainville. And even whilst the crisis was occurring, our shipping and our stevedoring businesses continued to operate in Bougainville. You know, we have a company which is a 50-50 joint venture called Nakana Stevedores, which has been going the whole time. There wouldn't have been very much work uh, in the intervening period for them. <laughs> no, uh, the, the scarcity of, of uh, dockings in Bougainville meant that it's been a business that sort of stayed open, but certainly hasn't enjoyed volumes. All right, so you were forced out and you, you had property there or you had leased property and yes. that, was, that was just taken and you obviously lost all the contents of what was in those buildings and so on, did you? I, th- I think like everyone else, we downed tools and, and, and left, you know, when we were advised to do so for our own safety and, and effectively left everything on the ground. And it's lost? Uh, well, a lot of the assets that we had, the land's not lost, but a lot of the assets with, that we had are either ruined or lost, yes. The land you had was leased and you have now reached an arrangement with the autonomous government of Bougainville for those to be restored? Yes, in a nutshell. This must be huge for a company like yours. Yeah, look, I mean, effectively, obviously, you know, the caretakers of Bougainville, the autonomous Bougainville government, are looking to up their economic activity. They know us. We've, we've known them for a long time. And, you know, Steamships was quite a visible and popular member of the business community. So 
you know, they, they've been very good in terms of a discussion and getting us back there. So, I, I mean, it is huge. There are a number of businesses looking to re-enter or enter for the first time. And we've taken, I guess, the next step where our managing director, Rupert, actually went across, met with them and participated in, in a ceremony to, to mark the occasion, if you like. Does this mean you're going to re-establish the hotel and so on? And what, what are you going to do there? To be honest, I think it's early days. I mean, the, the natural thing for us to do straight away is to enhance what we've got there, which is our shipping and stevedoring. And then we will work with the people on the ground in Bougainville with the ABG to establish the type of opportunity that we can pursue. This economy is coming from almost nothing to hopefully something quite large, particularly if the Panguna mine reopens, as a lot of people seem to want to happen. So you would see a huge potential there. Well, I mean, I guess from a steamship's perspective, we do see huge potential, hence hence the engagement and hence the visit by our managing director and our legal counsel and a team. You know, in terms of the mine reopening, that's obviously a matter for other people. But, you know, should that reopen, obviously it changes the whole dynamic of Bougainville in terms of what they've got. But, but there's other industry there. There's a thriving cocoa industry and, and copper industry. And, you know, as the uh, economic sort of certainty returns to Bougainville, it would be good to be there to, to participate in it and, and, and assist the people. The company's not nervous. Clearly, you would have lost significant amounts of money. Look, I, I think so. Over time, the crisis happened quite a while ago. So, you know, all of that's been absorbed into the finances of steamships. Yes, we'll need a certain amount of certainty, but the dialogue to date has been promising and encouraging. And we're 100% Papua New Guinean company. All our business is, is in this region. So we keep a close eye on things. Some may say we take risks, but effectively everything's done with a great deal of thought. The New Zealand government is being called out on its conflicting foreign policies of being a friend to its Pacific neighbours and a spy for the US alliance. A New Zealand military intelligence officer speaking on the condition of anonymity told investigative journalist Nikki Haga and the Australia declassified website how morally conflicted they were by the extensive spying they helped undertake in the Pacific. Nikki Haga, who broke the story of Australia and New Zealand spying in the Pacific in 2015, says this new source coming forward just shows the practice continues. Haga says if the New Zealand government is genuine about being part of the Pacific family, it needs to stop spying on its little brothers and sisters. In this final instalment of a three-part Talanoa series, I'm joined by investigative journalist, author Nikki Haga and the co-founder of Declassified Australia, Anthony Lowenstein. If you missed parts one and two, you can find them under Pacific Waves on our website, rnzi.com, or just check out the last two episodes of the Pacific Waves podcast. That's the first and second of March, respectively, available on all major podcast platforms. We wrap up our Talanoa series today with Nikki Haga and Anthony Lowenstein responding to me, asking them what they hope to see change as a result of their coverage of this issue. Shall I start? Yeah, go, Nikki. I'm an, I'm an optimist. And I think that there's a, there's a real potential for change in New Zealand. And the reason for this is that we've, we've sort of like we've got two completely incompatible foreign policies going on at the same time. One of them, which people really believe in and like, is that we're an independent country, that we have an independent foreign policy, that we want to have good, honest, genuine, open relationships with our neighbours. That's all true. 
And then at the same time, because of our history, we have a completely different foreign policy where we are proud, we, meaning the government, the secret officials, are proud of being part of an American alliance. We do, we, we're the smallest member of that alliance. We do everything we can to live up to, to, to being part of it and to show that we're useful. And those two foreign policies just don't work together. They clash. And so I believe that whenever we publicize things like this, and the more that people understand these contradictions, the closer we come to the day where the contradiction will be resolved and we will actually get the foreign policy, which is the, the one that the public wants, which is the independent one. I would agree with that in some ways. I mean, I think I'm a little bit less optimistic about Australia's prospects of changing some of these issues in the short term. I do think, though, more and more people in the general public, and this is not unique to Australia, in fact, do often say that they want to have a truly independent country. They want to have friends, to be sure, and allies. They don't want to be isolated. But I think a lot of Australians are disturbed by the reality of some of the relationships that we have with our supposedly best friend, which is the US, some of American actions, not least since 9-11, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, the list goes on. I think a lot of Australians feel uncomfortable about that. The challenge I think that we have, and I think Nikki's piece doesn't touch on this directly, but I would say it's implied, is that there's an Australian election in a few months. Um, we don't know, obviously, who's going to win. But when it comes to these kinds of issues at the moment, there is virtual bipartisan agreement. In other words, it wouldn't make much difference if the Labor opposition wins in the upcoming election. And I think the challenge, therefore, is to make these kinds of issues, to explain to people, as Nikki's article does so well, that Australia and New Zealand, in other words, at the moment, are sort of have spheres of influence in terms of spying within the Pacific. New Zealand takes care of some countries, Australia takes care of others, and the piece lists those very clearly. And to make more in the public, not just upset about it, but push their politicians and the media to report on that critically, I think that to me would be an important takeaway and to hope that more pieces like this appear and more journalists are willing to spend time and it's, there's investment in that to make those stories happen. That's Specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at me for next time more.